I want to talk this morning about the immutability of God. You can turn, if you like, to 1 Samuel 15. That's the chapter we'll ultimately end up in. But part of this is going to sound a little bit like a lesson in theology proper, immutability. This is one of God's most fundamental attributes, and it's one of the pillars of biblical theism. But it's a doctrine that is frequently under assault nowadays. You have, for example, the heresy known as process theology, the notion that God is, in some respects, mutable, changeable, subject to passions and mood changes and and limited to some extent by the progress of time so that according to process theology, God Himself is learning and changing and becoming. And it gets its name from the idea that according to this view, God Himself is in process. You have a similar error, only slightly less severe in open theism. And I'll have more to say about process theology and open theism before we're done this morning. But both of these are serious errors. They're significant departures from what Scripture teaches us about God. Uh, But I want to deal with this subject, the immutability of God, because I've actually heard some ideas being floated and kicked around among some young pastors who I care about, including a few Master Seminary alumni who I see online. And there are blogs and Facebook discussion forums where people who should know better like to question essential aspects of classic theism, raising, for example, the question of whether God really exists outside of time. How can He not be subject to the passing of time like the rest of us? And and surely some element of change is necessary for God to interact with humanity in any meaningful way. These are ideas you hear out there, and they're bad ideas. How could God possibly relate to our sorrows and our disappointments unless God Himself can experience changing emotions and or suffer from things like disappointment and pain? Isn't forgiveness itself a change in the way God views us? And so those questions are being asked, and every one of those questions is a direct blow against the eternal immutability of God. But I'm hearing things like that more and more nowadays. Here's how one writer on the internet says it, quote, "'Personal experience presents us with a God who is affected by, who responds to, what is happening in the world, a God who listens and relates. And that author then goes on to argue explicitly against the biblical idea of God as unchanging, eternally unchanging. This is a drift that I think reflects the spirit of our age. You know, the postmodern mind is enamored with the idea of change and, and repulsed by the thought of fixed unchanging laws or principles, moral principles, the idea that God Himself never changes is frankly impossible to reconcile with the postmodern urge to redefine everything, to reject everything that's old, to deconstruct moral standards, or to tear down everything that is fixed or steady. That's what people today want to do, and by that way of thinking, immutability would seem to make even God boring. And they actually think they are doing God a favor by making Him out to be different from how He has revealed Himself in Scripture. And I want to look at this doctrine with you in a way that I hope will seem fresh to you, that will anchor your own thinking about God, because if God is mutable, if 
if he changes or if he can be made to change in any respect, then he's not really the God we meet in Scripture. And I want to show you why this morning. By the way, here's an interesting footnote to uh, this whole subject. Charles Spurgeon preached and published more than 3,500 sermons in the course of his ministry, all of them different. He never, he didn't do what I do, re-preach an old sermon. He didn't do that. (laughs) And if you go to volume one of his sermons and look up the first sermon Spurgeon ever published, you'll find it was a sermon titled, The Immutability of God. Not a bad starting point for grounding people in biblical theology. Immutability, it's one of the characteristics of God that sets Him totally apart from everything else in creation. He doesn't change. Both His character and His will are fixed and steady. God is the one true constant in all the universe. And it's important that we see that. God doesn't waver or equivocate. He isn't subject to fits and mood swings. He doesn't change His mind. He doesn't break His covenants. He doesn't go back on His Word. He is steadfast in every attribute, unchanging in all of His perfection, unvacillating in all of His judgments, and faithful to all of His promises. And in some ways, if you think about it, this is the easiest to grasp and most obvious of all of the divine attributes. You just think about it seriously for a moment, and you'll realize, of course God is immutable. He's the sum of all perfection. He is flawless in all of His attributes. He couldn't possibly be any better than He is, and so any change in Him would have to be for the worse. And obviously, that's not possible. In fact, if it were so much as a possibility for God to mutate into something other than who He is, He wouldn't be truly perfect in the first place. And even common sense, then, affirms the immutability of God. Try to propose any theory about change in God, and you eliminate the possibility of true perfection. In fact, one sustained theme reverberates through all of the biblical revelation about God, and it's this, God is perfect in every way. Everything you can possibly say that is true about God underscores His absolute perfection. In the words of Scripture, Psalm 1830, this God, His way is perfect. All His works are right and His ways are just. In fact, you may have noticed over the years when I'm speaking about the attributes of God, sometimes I will use the expression, the perfections of God. That's because every one of the characteristics of the divine being shines brightly with absolute and consummate perfection. You'll see perfection from whatever perspective you look at God. Uh, Glorious perfection emanates from Him no matter what aspect of Him you you consider. James 1.17 says this, it refers to Him as the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And that means that if God changed at all, it would have to be for the worse because He couldn't possibly be any better than He is. And any serious thinking about the God of Scripture will ultimately lead you to that conclusion. And in fact, the perfection of God is such that finite and imperfect creatures like us cannot possibly comprehend it. It's like, it's like infinity itself. We understand the concept, we know it has to be, but we can't wrap our minds around it. We can only stand in awe of it and acknowledge it. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom 
and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable are His ways, for who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been His counselor? Or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things, to Him be glory forever." That's Romans 11, 33 through 36. And if you grasp what Paul is saying about the profound supremacy and perfection of God, you'll understand why it's impossible to think that God would ever be in a state of flux or transition or growth or development. He he cannot possibly be dithering or vacillating in any of His plans, His judgments, or, or His own nature especially. Sound reason alone allows us no other conclusion. If God were not immutable, then He couldn't be truly perfect. But we're not left to figure out that doctrine by common sense. Scripture is emphatic in its affirmation of the doctrine of divine immutability. This is one of the most basic truths Scripture teaches us about God. And and by that I mean that if you don't believe in the immutability of God, whatever God you do believe in is not the God of Scripture. If you don't believe God never changes, then your God is too human. Incidentally, this is one of the glaring defects of all pagan religions. Their gods are never immutable. The minds of pagan gods can always be changed, usually by some form of bribery or coercion. They are moody and fallible and unpredictable, arbitrary, erratic beings with very human characteristics. Those are the gods invented by the human mind. The God of Scripture is not like that at all. And in fact, God condemns people whose thoughts of Him are earthbound and human, Psalm 50, verse 21. And God is the one speaking here, and these are words of reprimand. He says, you thought that I was one like yourself, but now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. It's a sin, in other words. It's a a kind of idolatry to reimagine God in human terms, to humanize God, to try to impute to Him human emotions or human characteristics is to dethrone Him and set an idol in His place. And I want you to hang on to that thought because we'll come back to it. It's, it is positively sinful to remake God in our image. If you want a God who is like you, who thinks like you, you're constructing an idol. It's an insult to think of God as if He were human. It's one of the most subtle but sinful tendencies of the fallen heart to think thoughts about God that are unworthy of Him. He is not like us. Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9, "'For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways,' declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, my thoughts higher than your thoughts." That's a principle that holds true in every realm of exchange between humanity and God. He doesn't think like we do. And we can't think like He does. We can ponder the perfection of God, but we'll never fully comprehend it. Again, it's, it's like infinity. You can think about it, you realize it must be, but you can't wrap your mind around it. And if you try to remake God into a lesser being just so that you feel like you can relate to Him more easily or, or like Him better, you're playing a dangerous spiritual game. And multitudes are guilty of that. We all have that tendency. Let's just confess it. We conceive of God in the way we want Him to be rather than the way He has revealed Himself. And have you ever noticed that 
whenever people concoct the kind of God they want, the result is pretty much a self-portrait. We want to be God. Too many evangelicals even have dethroned the true God of Scripture in their hearts and replaced Him with an imaginary friend of their own making. Don't do that. If you have shallow thoughts about God or if you worship a manageable deity who, who's the product of your own imagination, your thinking about God needs an overhaul. And perhaps your religion is the first thing you need to repent of. And for the very same reason, it's crucial not to allow reason or philosophy or human speculation to govern our thinking about God. That means even though it seems reasonable to acknowledge the immutability of God, the real question, the ultimate question, as in every point of theology, the ultimate question is, what does the Bible say about it? And as I said, the Bible is emphatic about the immutability of God. Here are some sample texts. I'll read them to you. Just You just just listen to these. Don't try to turn there because you'll never get there in time because I'm going to read a whole slew of Bible texts that affirm the unchangeableness of God. Malachi 3 verse 6, God speaking, says, I, the Lord, do not change. That's pretty straightforward, right? I've already quoted James 1.17, the verse that speaks of God as the Father of lights with whom there is no variation nor shadow due to change. And that pictures God as the source of all true light. That's the image James is, is portraying there. And it's interesting that the feature James highlights is the utter lack of any variation or fluctuation in God. God is not, for example, like the moon, which merely reflects light, and as the solar system turns, a shadow is cast across the face of the moon every month. God is not even like the sun. The sun traverses the sky and causes whatever it shines on to cast some kind of shadow, and those shadows shrink or grow as the earth turns. There is no such phenomenon with God. There's no variation with Him. There's no dark side. There's no shadow cast by turning. This is a powerful affirmation of God's immutability. Psalm 102, verses 25 through 27, this is a hymn of praise about the immutability of God. It says, "'Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain.'" They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away, but you are the same, and your years have no end." By the way, Hebrews 1 quotes that psalm and applies it to Christ, and so it turns out that this hymn is actually an inspired song of praise to God, to to the Son of God from His eternal Father. That's how the New Testament interprets that. It's a little window for us to see Trinitarian praise from one member of the Godhead to another, and it's also one of the great proofs of the deity of Christ because He's not only the creator of this world, but He also possesses these attributes that belong to God alone, eternality and immutability. And the writer of Hebrews repeats that idea again in Hebrews 13 verse 8, familiar verse, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Here's another text, Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not man that He should lie, or a son of man that He should change His mind. That's an important text. Remember that thought I told you to hang on to earlier? It is a serious sin to humanize God. 
Now, this text, Numbers 23, 19, says that change is a particularly human characteristic. You and I are mutable. We are, in fact, pathologically mutable. We're subject to shifting opinions and changing trends. We're not even faithful to our New Year's resolutions, (laughs) much less our commitments to one another. We hem and haw and equivocate. We blow hot and cold. But God is not like that at all. Listen to A.W. Tozer on this. He wrote this, quote, "'The immutability of God appears in its most perfect beauty when viewed against the mutability of men. In God, no change is possible. In men, change is impossible to escape. Neither the man is fixed nor his world, but he and it are in constant flux.'" In other words, both we and the world we live in is in a perpetual state of transition, and the laws of moral and physical and spiritual entropy dictate that when, when we are left to ourselves, we tend to go from bad to worse. So God's immutability is one of the fundamental things that differentiates Him from us. He doesn't change His mind. He doesn't go back on His Word. He doesn't say one thing and then do another. He doesn't make idle threats. All men and women do all of those things but not God. That's why Paul, at the conclusion of his discussion about the sinfulness of humanity, says, yea, let God be true, but every man a liar. God is not like us. And one of the most obvious differences is this truth, that He is immutable. He's not subject to change of any kind, including second-guessing or regret or reappraisal or self-doubt or disappointment. God doesn't have a plan B, and He's never needed one. Here are a few more texts that affirm God's immutability. Isaiah 31, verse 2, He does not call back His words. Isaiah 40, verse 28, He does not faint or grow weary. Romans 11:29. The gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Psalm 33, 11 says that God's decree is unalterable and His plan is unchanged from the very start. It says, the counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of His heart to all generations. Hebrews 6, verse 17 says, both His promises and His purpose are immutable. Romans 11, 34, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 16, both say that God can't learn anything He doesn't already know, and those verses echo a string of other similar verses in the Old Testament, especially in Job and Isaiah. Who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct Him? Job 23, verse 13, He is unchangeable, and who can turn Him back? What He desires, that He does. So. I hope you see the fact of divine immutability is clear and emphatic in Scripture. He is the same yesterday and today and forever. In Him there is no variation or shadow due to change. According to Hebrews 6, 17 and 18, His faithfulness is guaranteed by His immutability. Even His names underscore the truth of His immutability, Exodus 3.14, I am who I am. God is the eternal I am. He's not changing into someone different. He's not morphing into someone else. He's not growing into something better. He's not transforming into something greater. By definition, all of that would be impossible. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, eternally unchanging and utterly perfect in every way. 
Two dozen or more texts in Scripture refer to God as a rock. Isaiah 26.4, the Lord God is an everlasting rock. And, and that imagery is deliberate. It speaks of security. It's a permanent place of refuge and trustworthiness, uh, inert in the sense that there is no change in it. The idea of immutability is more or less built into that expression, that our God is a rock. Now, that's only a metaphor, obviously. God, of course, is not a literal rock. And furthermore, to be immutable is not to be inert. I, I use that word, but it doesn't mean He's inert. God doesn't change His mind or His character or His eternal purpose, but He is active, and the operations and outworking of His will and decrees certainly do change from our perspective. God acts and interacts with His creatures, and for reasons that may be unknown to us, but reasons that are always perfectly consistent with God's unchanging will, He may show mercy in one case and wrath in another. doesn't mean He's changed. That's His eternal will. He is not passive or remote. He is actively involved in and, and cares for His creation. He, he may from time to time bring either His wrath or His compassion more or less to the forefront in, in the way He deals with sinful humanity, so that from our perspective, He may seem to grow angry. Scripture uses language like that. Lamentations 4 verse 11, the Lord gave full vent to His wrath. He poured out His hot anger, and He kindled a fire in Zion that consumed its foundations. And you frequently find similar expressions, such as Psalm 78 verse 4, which says that the Israelites grieved God in the desert, or 2 Kings 22:17, where God warns that His wrath is about to be kindled. But we're not to imagine that God's affections, these dispositions, His wrath and His compassion, these don't rise and fall involuntarily like our human emotions. God's wrath against sin and His joy in the outworking of redemption, these are steadfast, perfect affections, like all the other attributes of God, not, not in the process of change. And that's what we mean when we say God is impassable. He doesn't have passions that rise and fall like that. He can't be surprised or disappointed or injured, and His affections are not, we're not to think of them as uncontrolled passions like human feelings usually are. Our, our emotions react to stuff. God doesn't react, He acts. And this idea of impassibility, I think I preached on it once here, it's a huge subject, and it's related to the doctrine of immutability. We don't have time this morning to explore it in depth, but I did write an article about it which you can download on the web. It's just Google it. It's titled, God Without Mood Swings. You can find it with any search engine. But the point this morning is, don't ever imagine that God is subject to temper tantrums or fits of passion. His mood does not change. All of His affections are as steadfast and unwavering as the rest of His attributes. And this doctrine of divine immutability is such a foundational truth that you wouldn't think anyone who seriously claims to be a Christian could possibly deny it, but that is not the case. One of the most spiritually deadly and anti-biblical developments in the world of theology over the past century is this tendency to attack the immutability of God. I mentioned at the beginning the process theology. The, the basic idea is that God Himself is in process 
constantly shifting, becoming something other than what he used to be. And one of the key arguments they use, of course, is that old canard about the God of the Old Testament being different from the New Testament God. The idea is, and it's a common one, you hear it every now and then from people who think that the Old Testament God was more stern, more destructive, more intolerant than the more gracious and kindly God Jesus spoke about in the New Testament. And of course, that is pure poppycock. That only comes from somebody who doesn't understand Scripture. Because for one thing, it flatly contradicts what the New Testament says about Christ, that He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He is the same yesterday and today and forever. And furthermore, if you study the Scriptures carefully, and even superfluously, you ought to notice that the Old Testament, by sheer weight of volume, actually has much more to say about the mercy and loving-kindness of God than the New Testament does. It's a theme that permeates the Old Testament, Psalm 145, verse 9, the Lord is good to all and His mercy is over all that He has made, First Chronicles 16, 34, oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Now, think of what that verse is saying, His steadfast love endures forever. Not only is the theme of that Old Testament verse all about the tender mercies of God, the whole point is yet another affirmation of the principle of divine immutability. His, his steadfast love endures forever. He doesn't change. And I only gave that one reference, but the fact is that very same phrase, He is good for His steadfast love endures forever, that's a frequent refrain in the Psalms. As a matter of fact, that expression, His steadfast love endures forever, appears in every single verse of Psalm 136. Look it up, 26 verses total, and each verse ends with that same phrase, His steadfast love endures forever. So don't pretend that the loving-kindness of God is a theme you don't really hear about in the Old Testament, and don't pretend that the New Testament is only about the mercy and kindness of God without any note of judgment or wrath. Jesus alone had more to say about hell than the entire Old Testament. And when Paul preached in Athens, he characterized the Old Testament dispensation as the times of ignorance God overlooked, a time when God more or less was slow to judge the sins of the Gentile nations. But now, Paul says in Acts 17.30, he, now He commands all people everywhere to repent. So it is utterly foolish to claim that the God of the New Testament is, you know, more laid back and tolerant, a God of mercy compared to the wrathful God uh, that we encounter in the Old Testament. But people who hold that opinion, I always think, you haven't read the book of Revelation yet, have you? But that is the idea of process theology, that God is changing, He's becoming more kindly and more sophisticated. He's more tolerant of sin and more friendly to other belief systems, and He's not like the God who ordered the wholesale destruction of the, the Amalekites. He's becoming more and more like the ACLU or Greenpeace. <laughs> Process theology was a development in the extreme liberal end of the Protestant theological spectrum. Most of you probably never heard much about process theology. But then there's open theism. That's the other heresy I mentioned at the beginning, open theism. This is the toned-down sort of 
evangelicalized, Arminian-flavored version of process theology. Like process theology, open theism flatly rejects the truth that God is immutable. That's practically its starting point. Open theists believe that God doesn't know the future with absolute accuracy. How could He? Because it hasn't happened yet. That's their argument. So that the future is still open even in the mind of God. It's a radical Arminianism. If God isn't sovereign, then He he can't know what the future is. So of course by that view, God is constantly learning and discovering new things every day as the future unfolds and He finds out where things are going. The God of open theism discovers future events the same way we do, by watching them unfold. So not only is the God of open theism neither sovereign nor omniscient, He can't possibly be immutable because He's literally changing all the time, constantly learning and growing and developing, just like the God of process theology. Maybe not as liberal, but same idea. Openness doctrine is in effect a wholesale denial of the immutability of God. And open theists are very candid about this. They have no problem setting aside the classic view of God who is unchanging and eternally the same. They flatly deny that because they want to have a God who is uncertain, vacillating, undecided about what He's going to do, constantly juggling contingencies, and and they want to humanize God. They think that that makes God somehow more approachable. And open theism's teachings actually are beginning to filter into churches from everywhere, and you see these ideas nowadays, as I said, being set forth in internet discussion forums and defended by people who are openly challenging the classical biblical view of God, but they want to claim that they're thoroughly evangelical. They're not. By the way, while I... just so you think I'm not totally critical, while I was studying this subject, I read a large stack of really good material on the unchangeableness of God, and and I also read three books that were arguing for open theism. And the one thing that jumped out at me is that all of them, everybody, brought up 1 Samuel 15, which is the passage I want to look at with you, look at with you this morning for whatever time we have left, less time than I had hoped. Anyway, I was glad to see so many writers dealing with this passage because this is admittedly a very difficult passage, one of the more difficult ones in Scripture, and it ought to provoke us to think very carefully about what the Scriptures mean when we're told over and over that God is not man that He should lie or a son of man that He should change His mind. Although as I said, the immutability of God is is a truth that on a certain level seems self-evident. It's a doctrine that is repeatedly and emphatically asserted in the Bible from the beginning to end, despite all of that, it turns out this is not an easy doctrine after all because God Himself does sometimes make statements that express regret. Genesis 6, 6, for example, says, "'The Lord was sorry that He had made man on the earth, and it grieved Him to His heart.'" And also here in 1 Samuel 15, look at verse 11, God Himself says, "'I regret that I have made Saul king.'" And it turns out that God does occasionally relent after He threatens judgment. Does this mean He's changed? No, and I'm going to show you why. But it happens in Exodus 32, for example, after the incident where the Israelites made the golden calf and God threatened 
to consume the entire nation with fire and start over with just Moses. But Moses himself interceded, and Exodus 32.14 says, "...the Lord relented from the disaster that He had spoken of bringing on His people." Then we studied years ago together the book of Jonah, where after Jonah 3, after telling Jonah, after compelling a reluctant Jonah to preach this very specific warning to that evil city, yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown, Jonah 3 verse 10 says, God relented of the disaster that He said He would do to them, and He did not do it. So God does at times seem to alter His course of action in a dramatic way. If you take the Bible at face value without carefully considering the full context of all Scripture, which is what you need to always do, if you, if you just look at those isolated texts, it's tempting to conclude that God does so- sometimes resort to plan B. And our passage is a classic example of this, and I want to highlight three verses from this chapter that I hope to consider with you. Verse 11, God tells Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. So he expresses regret. But then look at verse 29, Samuel tells Saul, the glory of Israel, that's a name for God, will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. And by the way, Samuel uses the very same Hebrew word for regret that the Lord used in verse 11. So God says, I regret, then Samuel says, God will not have regret, He is not a man that He should regret anything. And then look at the last sentence in the chapter at the end of verse 35, and the Lord regretted that He had made Saul king over Israel. So what do you make of all of that? huh? In light of the biblical teaching that there is no variableness or shadow of turning with God, but He's the same yesterday, today, and forever, how do you make sense of this? Either Samuel was wrong to tell Saul that God doesn't regret anything, or he met something very specific in this one case uh, that God, you know, might change His mind about some things, but He's not going to relent on His decision to choose Saul, that's the interpretation that's actually favored by most of the open theists. Or the third possibility, the one I want to explain to you, is that Scripture is simply using a deliberate figure of speech when it says, God regretted making Saul king. And I'll I'll tell you now, if you truly believe in the authority of Scripture, that is the only possible conclusion from this text and all those others like it. This is a simple figure of speech, and it is purposely juxtaposed next to an emphatic reaffirmation of what the Bible consistently teaches everywhere about God, He is not vacillating or uncertain about anything. God doesn't make mistakes. He doesn't go back on His Word. He knows precisely what He's doing, and He always does it with careful purpose. And then we have these three or four instances in the Bible where God is described as changing His mind or relenting. And those texts are the equivalent of other texts that speak of God as if He had human body parts, you know, the right arm of the Lord or the Lord's face, the mouth of the Lord. We know not to take expressions like that literally. Why? Because Scripture says, God is spirit, John 4, 24, and Jesus said in Luke 24, 13, a spirit does not have flesh and bones. So those expressions we naturally interpret as figures of speech called anthropomorphisms. It's 
It's a figure of speech that ascribes a human form to God. They're figurative expressions. They are accommodated to our way of thinking because the reality of God is far beyond our capacity to understand without some kind of figurative language. And I'll illustrate it for you. I have seven gorgeous grandchildren, and I don't speak to them the same way I speak to my adult sons. I'm much friendlier with the grandkids for one thing, but, <laughs> but I mean, I don't even speak to all the grandkids the same way. The two who are about nine years old can understand complex explanations much more easily than the two or three-year-olds. In fact, Ray's back there, nine years old, taking notes on my message. Good man, Ray. But the, the little kids tend to think, take everything literally, and, and in fact, you should have heard my conversations with them when they were little babies. I would speak to them in baby talk. We all do that with infants. Some people do that with their dogs, you know, because it's a way of connecting with them on their level. God similarly does that with us, and when Scripture speaks of the hand of the Lord or the eyes of God, we're not to imagine that He has literal hands and eyes, because we're told plainly that He doesn't. He is pure spirit. And likewise, when Scripture says God relented in the very same context where we are told emphatically He doesn't relent because He isn't human, we need to understand that when it says God relented, it is using figurative language describing the operations of God in human terms that are familiar to us. This does not literally mean that God is arbitrary or vacillating, and in this case the figure of speech is powerful because it underscores the shocking force of God's judgment against Saul. The Lord utterly rejected Saul from the throne of Israel. And in the case of Israel at Sinai or Jonah in Nineveh, the language in those cases highlights the amazing mercy of God towards people who actually deserved harsh judgment. But in no case, in none of those instances, did God actually literally alter His original plan or call an audible because it's easy to demonstrate from the biblical record. For example, Jonah knew very well that God never intended to destroy Nineveh at that time, and he says so, Jonah says so in Jonah chapter 4 verse 2. In fact, Jonah was angry with God for that very reason, because God wanted to show mercy to Nineveh, and somehow Jonah anticipated that. It's why he fled in the first place. It wasn't that he was afraid of the Ninevites, it's that he didn't want God to show them mercy, and he had to get a whale ride back to where he was supposed to be, and when the city repented and God showed them mercy, Jonah complained to God about it. Jonah, 4, Jonah chapter 4, verse 2, he says this, "'I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster.'" He's not praising God for that. He's accusing God because he wanted God to destroy that city. So far from being proof that God changes, Jonah saw this gracious reprieve that God gave to Nineveh as proof that God was exactly what Jonah knew Him to be. Jonah himself clearly understood that the prophecy he was delivering about Nineveh's destruction, just like all of God's threats, it carries an unspoken condition. And Scripture is clear about that as well, too. In Ezekiel 33, verses 14 and 15, God says, "'Though I say to the wicked, you shall surely die,' 
Yet, if he turns from his sin and does what is just and right, if the wicked restores the pledge, gives back what he has taken by robbery, and walks in the statutes of life, not doing injustice, he shall surely live. He shall not die. In other words, all of God's threats, even when He doesn't say this, all of God's threats are qualified by that promise. And when God rescinded the threat of destruction from the city of Nineveh, it was not because God changed, but because the Ninevites repented. And same thing with Exodus 32, where God withheld the threat of destruction from Israel because Moses interceded on their behalf. God didn't change His mind. Moses stepped in as their intercessor, and God honored that. And in fact, He accepted Moses' personal grief as a symbol of the nation's repentance. And here in 1 Samuel 15, the situation is a little bit more complex. That's why this is a difficult passage. Twice in the narrative, we're told that God regretted making Saul king. And then once, right between those two statements, we're told that God never regrets anything because He's not a man. And so in the time we have left this morning, I want to try to untangle this for you. By the way, if you want a fuller look at 1 Samuel 15, I have preached on this chapter once before, uh, giving, uh, dealing there with a totally different difficulty. How, how do we understand and justify God's command to commit a wholesale act of genocide against the Amalekites? That's another tough problem with this passage, and I dealt with it in another message. If you go to the Grace Life pulpit and look at Scripture references, you'll find this. This is one of the most violent, harsh episodes in all of the Bible. God orders Saul to exterminate the entire race of the Amalekites. Even women and children and livestock were to be summarily destroyed. And the narrative then culminates with Samuel, the priest, grabbing a sword and seizing Agag, the Amalekite king, and in verse 33, Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord. In other words, he literally butchered this guy as an act of worship, and he did it to fulfill the Lord's command after Saul had sinned by showing Agag mercy. So how do we reconcile that with the truth that God is merciful and full of loving kindness? There's an article in Christianity Today in 2013 that raised a similar question. They said it like this. They said, it may seem hard to reconcile the new covenant God revealed in Jesus Christ who welcomes little children, eats with sinners, speaks peace to troubled hearts, calls us to love our enemies, and lets adulterers walk away unscathed to reconcile Him with the old covenant God who lays waste to entire cities, lets babies be dashed on rocks, opens the earth to swallow families whole, smites his own priests for just touching holy relics, and encourages parents to stone their own children for acting up. How do you reconcile those things? And the Christianity Today article, I don't recommend all of their articles, but this particular article went on to explain how we reconcile all those things. And the answer, of course, is not really that complex. God's hatred of evil and His determination to bring evildoers to justice is as firm and unchanging as His merciful forgiveness for those who repent and seek His mercy. If someone thinks the infinite mercy of God eliminates His perfect righteousness or, or does away with His fiery wrath against sin, you have the wrong idea of God. It's the New Testament, in fact, the book of Hebrews that tells us it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And our God is a consuming fire. 
That's precisely the truth that resolves the tension in this chapter. Since I've preached through 1 Samuel 15 in another context, I'm not going to cover the whole narrative again this morning. You can download that MP3 from the web if you want to hear it. But the bottom line is that the Amalekites truly deserved this judgment, and God has full authority to administer His judgments by any means He chooses. And in this case, He wanted to make a graphic statement through a decisive and bloody military victory against a nation that had treacherously ambushed Israel when they were virtually defenseless in the wilderness. The Amalekites also posed a significant terrorist threat to the future of Israel, as subsequent events in the Old Testament prove. You know, we recoil at the thought of genocide, and rightly so when it comes at the hands of evil, self-willed tyrants. But this was not a wanton act of human aggression. This was an act of judgment mandated by God, and it is His prerogative to judge. This is a -a one-of-a-kind incident that doesn't justify all other kinds of violence like this. Also, the destruction of Agag and the Amalekites is illustrative of how ruthlessly God wants us to deal with the sin in our lives. John MacArthur has a great sermon on that. It's titled, Hacking Agag to Pieces. You should download that one while you're downloading other things. But this morning, we're concerned with this other great difficulty in this passage, and it's the question of what to make of these statements that seem to contradict. How do we reconcile this in a reasonable way that does justice to Scripture and also takes the text seriously? Remember, Saul was the people's choice as king in the first place. He was never God's choice. The Lord conceded to the Israelites' demands for a king, even though it wasn't God's timing. Samuel was really the last and best of the judges, spiritual and military leaders, these judges. They weren't judges that sat in a courtroom. They were spiritual and military leaders who led Israel during that dark time when, in the words of Judges 21-25, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. But the people wanted a king instead of Samuel because they wanted to be like the other nations. Sounds like the evangelical church today. And in those days, monarchy was fashionable, and the Israelites, who had never had a king, felt unstylish. They were behind the times. And so they cornered Samuel and demanded a king like the other nations. 1 Samuel 8, verse 7, the Lord said to Samuel, "'Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them.'" So this was a rejection of God's rule over that nation, and God's plan for them involved a king, ultimately a long line of kings that would culminate in the greatest king of all times, the the Messiah. But now was not the time to institute the monarchy. It's possible, even likely, that David, God's choice for the throne, was not even born yet when Saul became king. So God's willingness to put Saul on the throne of Israel fulfilled a specific purpose. It was a lesson to the Israelites about the folly of demanding their own choices rather than obeying the Lord. And therefore, when God deposed Saul, this was not a sudden change of mind on God's part. It wasn't a change of mind at all from God's perspective. This was the culmination and the vindication of everything God had ever said from the beginning. And the only change that took place 
from the time Saul was anointed until the day he was deposed, the change that took place was a change in Saul. And that part of the story begins here in 1 Samuel 15, when Samuel received that command from the Lord about the extermination of the Amalekites, and he immediately conveys the message to Saul, verse 1, and he urges Saul to hearken carefully to the Lord's instructions. And Saul, who by this time had grown spiritually careless, and that's putting it lightly, he had basically turned his back on the Lord. He was intoxicated with his own power and reputation, and he decides in this case to render partial obedience to the Lord's command. He spared the Amalekite king, Agag, and he kept the very best of the livestock, verse 9, destroying only what was worthless anyway. And so God informs Samuel about Saul's failure to obey. Verse 11 gives us the exact words God spoke to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments." And Samuel understood exactly what that meant, that the people's king had blown his final opportunity and Saul was about to be deposed. In verses 12 through 31, there is this back-and-forth dialogue between Samuel and Saul. And Saul keeps insisting in verses 13 and verse 20 that he did obey the Lord, he says, but that's a lie or verse 15, at least he intended to obey the Lord and, and honor Him with a sacrifice of these animals. Plus, he subtly then tries to lay the blame on the people in verses 15 and 21. And finally, he admits in verse 24 that he has sinned, but even that supposed confession is another blame-shifting lie. Look at the end of verse 24, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. They told me to do it. It was their fault. This woman that you gave me. Saul didn't fear the people. He's lying again. He's just self-willed. He wasn't truly repentant. He was just sorry he got caught, and he was desperate to hang on to his throne, so he begs Samuel to pronounce him forgiven. And when Samuel turns to go, Saul even grabs his robe so firmly that it tears, verse 27, and Samuel then uses that torn robe as an object lesson for the prophecy he's about to deliver. And at this point, he affirms the immutability of God. Verse 28, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. In other words, God will not change his mind. This judgment is final. And Samuel's declaration of the immutability of God is the terminal punctuation for this pronouncement of judgment against Saul. Samuel then kills Agag, verse 33, and he and Saul go their separate ways, verse 34. And the closing verse then reiterates what God said in verse 11. It's a profound and stunning and sobering expression of God's displeasure with Saul spoken in the strongest possible language using a figure of speech. This does not negate the truth of verse 28. It cannot negate that truth because to interpret this as a literal statement that God thought He had made a mistake would be to make God a liar. Now, our time is nearly gone, and all I've given you are bullet points without any kind of outline. You notice that? Some of you watch for my outline. You know that's not my normal style. So let me quickly give you a three-point outline of the practical benefits of this doctrine 
of divine immutability. Three points you can take down and then we'll be finished. Number one, it's a reason for the wicked to fear. That was Samuel's point here in verse 29. Saul, who is seeking a kind of flippant forgiveness for his weak-hearted half-obedience, makes a half-hearted and very weak confession that is really no confession at all. Samuel cites the doctrine of divine immutability in order to make it clear that God's judgment, like all of His decrees, is final, irrevocable, and settled forever, and that ought to have struck fear into Saul's heart although Saul's subsequent history shows it only hardened his heart. But the truth that God is immutable ought to evoke a holy fear in the hearts of the wicked. It debunks the notion of those who claim that God is now more tolerant of, and less harsh and is not the way we see Him in the Old Testament accounts like this one, but not true. God doesn't change, and sinners need to see that they are the ones who need to change. They should seek His face and repent and ask for mercy. That's what the gospel calls us to do and promises us mercy because of the sacrifice of Christ. So God's immutability is a reason for the wicked to fear. Number two, it's a reason for the redeemed to be comforted. It's a reason for the redeemed to be comforted. God's immutability guarantees that He will honor all of His promises and He will fulfill the work of conforming us perfectly to the image of Christ. Most of the explicit statements about divine immutability are given for that very reason, to comfort the elect. I have time to cite only one of them, and it's the one I began with, Malachi 3, verse 6, "'I, the Lord, do not change, therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed.'" The parallel passage is one that we sing about all the time, Lamentations 3, verses 22 and 23, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. So divine immutability is a reason for the wicked to fear. It's a reason for the redeemed to be comforted. And third, it's a reason for all creation to glorify God. Everything in the universe other than God is subject to change. Psalm 102 reminds us that everything other than God was created by Him and therefore owes Him honor and praise. Psalm 102 verse 25, "'Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You, you will change them like a robe, and they will pass away, but you are the same, and your years have no end.'" Remember. There is messianic significance in that psalm. I quoted it earlier. It's the same one that Hebrews, the book of Hebrews says, that's about Christ. And Philippians 2 verses 10 and 11 tell us that one day at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and in earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And I am convinced that if you truly lay hold of the truth of God's immutability, it will drive you to that truth. It's the truth of the gospel, and it should drive us to bow and embrace Christ as Lord and Savior, and He says, those who come to Him, He will not cast out. Let's pray. Father, Your Word assures us that even when we are faithless, You remain faithful. You cannot deny yourself. You will not break your promises. You do not change your mind. You're a rock and an anchor for us in a fallen world that offers no security whatsoever. So we pray, Lord, fill our hearts with faith.
Give us grace to be steadfast in a way that reflects your immutability, in a way that befits your children and reflects the character of Christ. And may we thus be a testimony of your truth in a world of turmoil for the glory of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. You have been listening to pastor and teacher Phil Johnson. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Copyright by Phil Johnson, all rights reserved.